We have been blessed by our choir. Amen. Let's thank them one more time as they're making their way. And let's say a word of thanks to Tony Cunha for all of his work. Thank you, sir. I know you have been encouraged by them as I have. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to turn to a strange selection for a Christmas Eve worship service. But I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And I will actually read this passage toward the end of the sermon, but I want you to have it ready just in case. My intention this morning is to work through several passages about the king and his kingdom. We were just singing, Hail to the newborn king. Alleluia to the newborn king. I would like to speak with you this morning for a few moments about the king and his kingdom. My family this week spent some time in a kingdom. A kingdom in central Florida. Some of you might have been to this kingdom. It's called the Magic Kingdom. And it was built by a man named Walt Disney. Any of you been to this kingdom? You have all paid your Mickey Mouse taxes, yes. The kingdom built by Walt. Well, Walt Disney built a kingdom that actually many, many people have visited. When the opening of Disneyland took place in 1955, in the first year... 3.6 million people visited that kingdom. When they eventually opened the kingdom that my family visited in Orlando, Florida, Disney World, in the first year alone, some 20 million people came. They have averaged every year since something like 17 to 18 million visitors every year. And just in rough math, For the years that it's been open, the Orlando Kingdom has seen some 800 million visitors. Do do you know how many people live in the United States? Just a little over 330 million. That's every human in the United States at least twice, if you just do the pure mathematics. My family and I visited this kingdom and we heard languages of every, every tribe and every tongue. Japanese and Chinese, we heard plenty of Spanish, we heard plenty of French and every European dialect, African dialects. Of course, this kingdom draws people from around the world. And it was built by a man who grew up poor in Illinois on a farm in Marceline. He got his beginning, Walt Disney, drawing cartoons for a local newspaper. He's not that much of a cartoonist or not that much of a a journalist, but he found a gift in drawing little pictures that had little punchlines. He eventually went on to build a kingdom that consumed his life. I read his biography last summer and found it to be fascinating. He was married to a wonderful woman his entire life named Lillian. They had two daughters. The family barely saw much of Walt. He worked six and a half days a week. 
His only break would be on Sunday morning. And it wasn't to go to church. He would take his two daughters to a local restaurant and they had pancakes together. That was their favorite breakfast item. And then they would go spend about two hours at a little amusement park called Griffin Park in Los Angeles. He had a love for the Ferris wheel and the carousel and bumper cars. And he would take his daughters there for about two hours. If you add the breakfast, maybe three, four hours. And that's all they would see of him all week long. He lived in his office, slept in his office, and most of the time never even came home to sleep in his own bed. He died at age 65, having smoked his entire life unfiltered cigarettes and a pipe, ultimately dying of lung cancer. It's his brother Roy Disney that ultimately saw the kingdom become what it is today, the magic kingdom. He died before the Florida location even opened. He never got to see it with his own eyes. His kingdom has now expanded to numerous cities around the world. Tokyo, Paris, Hong Kong, Shanghai, all have a Disney park. California, of course, the first. Orlando. There are resorts named after him. There are cruise ships named after him. There's every movie you can imagine, animated, cartoon. They even own Star Wars. My family and I went to see that last night. Pixar, Toy Story, you name it, they own it all. It's a kingdom Walt built. But let me try to make a spiritual application. For all his efforts and for all of his ingenuity, the kingdom that Walt built will not stand forever. There may be millions of people visit each year and billions of dollars in assets, but there will come a day when Walt and his kingdom will fade. But I want to share with you today about a kingdom that will never end. A kingdom that is infinitely more great and infinitely more magnanimous, and it will be forever into eternity. Could I share a little bit about that kingdom with you? Well, it actually is a wonderful story to tell about a king and his kingdom And it all begins in the Old Testament when a king was foretold. A king was foretold. The king that I want to share with you today was foretold long before his birth by the prophets. They had a knowledge that God would send forth a Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the King of all the earth. And they told about His birth some 1,000 years before it took place. Isaiah the prophet said these words that we've sung today from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. His kingdom would come from the tribe of David and from the kingdom that David established that God said shall never end. And even his birth was foretold and the city that the king would be born in was foretold. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we hear of that prophecy. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be one among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, the king in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, and from ancient days. We think sometimes it was the census that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, but it was actually the prophets foretelling the place and the location and the city and the time that the king would come. The king would be born in the city of David whose kingdom he shall rule over. You see, those prophets never saw the king except in knowing that the king one day would come. And on the night that he did arrive, this king was heralded by angels. Heralded by angels. Luke chapter 2, the more traditional message on a Easter, or Christmas morning. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. Gloria in excelsis Deo. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Angels from heaven announce and herald the King has come. They sing to God glory and glory in the highest. And they describe the lowliness of the King's birth in a manger, in a feeding trough, wrapped in poor parents' clothing. Not a robe, not a crown, not a palace, but a manger with animals and shepherds and hay. He was not going to be like other kings that had ruled the earth. He was going to be God's king who would rule all eternity. And the angels announced His arrival, and this announcement put fear into the hearts of other kings. Kings feared this king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 and through 6. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. 
This is where the king would be born. And Herod, who is the king of this land, is fearful and is trembling and is afraid of what's to come. He knows that his kingdom is now in jeopardy because the true king has been born. And doing the most evil and most heinous of things, Herod announces an order to kill all two-year-old boys and under in the region of Bethlehem trying to kill the king. But the king survived. You see, not only was Herod seeking the king, eventually Herod learned of the exact location of the king by kings themselves. There was another group of kings who came, and they came not to seek him or to kill him. They come to worship him. The king was worshipped by magi. Do you know what the word magi means? It means king. That's where we get the idea of the three kings, magi, magisterium, or the majesty. It's all in the same vein. It's kings who came. We often think of them as wise men or astrologers or men who take note of the things in the heavens. And while they see the star, their actual terminology is of kings. They're not afraid of the newborn king. They want to worship the newborn king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, wise magi from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born, what? King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Same chapter, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. One king sought to destroy Jesus, but these kings sought to worship Jesus, and they bowed down to Him, and they offered Him gifts. Friends, we all have a challenge. We all have a a, a compelling challenge this morning. If you want to know your proper posture before the king, it's to bow down to the king. It's to worship the king. It's to lay your life before the king. Amen? It's not to vault yourself or put yourself on some throne or on some high exalted place. No, the proper posture for all the universe when it comes to the king of eternity is to bow and to worship and to offer what we have before him. So often we want to be the king of our kingdom. Let me tell you folks, you and I are not kings. There is one king. And his name is King Jesus. See, the kings of that day, some feared him, some worshipped him. But his people did not receive him. John does not write a nativity passage so that we think of baby Jesus and the manger and the shepherds. No, John in his gospel writes a an introduction to who Jesus is. And he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
the creator of all things that we know. In John chapter 1, though, we have these words in verse 10 and 11. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. You see, the Jewish people, the sons and daughters of Israel, did not receive Him. They had long awaited for the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. They had waited for the Deliverer, the One that God had promised. And when He came, when this King came, they could not see Him as such because they were anticipating a conquering hero, a general, a commander, someone who would ride in on a chariot, ride on a white horse, ride in and overthrow Rome. Instead, the King came in a manger with no fanfare except heralding angels. He did not have a victory over any warring party. He came in meek and mild. But even as Jesus grew and became a man and and developed and came into His own earthly ministry, it still did not prove to them who He was. No matter His miracles, His powers, His ability to walk on water, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, cure the lame to forgive sin, to know people's thoughts, to feed multitudes, to calm storms. No matter what Jesus did, they still did not receive Him because they were thinking He would be something different. Though the King had come and the King had been long foretold and the King had been heralded by an angel and by stars, the people that the King came to save did not receive Him. And ultimately, it's those people who cry for Him to be crucified. You see, the King was crucified as a criminal. When you turn to Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is standing before Pilate the governor and a question is asked in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. This answer is more than just Jesus turning the words back to Pilate. He's saying, Your words are true. I am the king, but the king has not been received by His people. So what happens? Verse 27 of Matthew chapter 27 show how they treated the king of eternity. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. That's a kingly robe. And they twisted together a crown of thorns. They're mocking him as king. And they put it on his head. And they put a reed in his right hand. That would be to represent a staff or a scepter of a king. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. We just sang hail. To the king. 
they're using the exact same words to insult Jesus. Verse 30, And they spat on Him, and they took the reed, and they struck Him on the head. And when they had mocked Him, they stripped Him of the robe and put on His own clothes and led Him away to crucify Him. The king was mocked and beaten. The king was nailed to a cross. And though there was no crime to be had, no deceit in his mouth, no blasphemy, no insurrection, he was crucified as a criminal. And while we know the deeper, truer meaning of his death as the sacrifice for sin, for the payment for our wrongdoing, for the for the wrath of God to be turned away from us and to be placed upon His Son. We understand it now, but then they were killing someone who had done nothing wrong. The King of the universe was dying a physical death. And it was the turning point of all history. It's the dividing line of all time. If the King dies and stays dead... He is no king. He is no Messiah. He is no ruler. He is none of the things the prophets foretold. He is simply a religious leader who came, died, and was forgotten. But friends, I got some good news. The king rose from the dead. Matthew chapter 28, the next chapter opens this way. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and His clothing white as snow. And for fear of Him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But then the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen as He said. The king's greatest victory was not on a battlefield or in combat. The king's greatest victory was not to overcome another army or another empire. The king's greatest victory was not against flesh and blood. Our king's greatest victory was over your sin and mine. Our king's greatest victory was over your death in exchange for his death. And our king conquered death, sin, and hell. He was victorious in His resurrection, proving that He truly was the King of promise. And friends, I have even more great news for you today. While the King rose from the dead, the King will return. The King will return. In Acts chapter 1, the next chapter, in this amazing tale... Jesus is ascending into heaven and the verses say this in Acts chapter 1 verse 10 and 11. And while they, that's the disciples, were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes. Angels have been showing up everywhere. Amen? From the beginning and now to the end. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
verse 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Listen for the king language, friends. And with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Do you hear it? The angels herald His coming. Now the voice of the archangel is announcing the king has returned. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Friends, your king is going to return. And if you live long enough to see it, you will be caught up with him in the air. And if you have been, if you have died before his return, you will rise to meet the king who will return. And how will it look? How will it be? Well, now it's time to read Revelation 19. John sees a vision of what this will look like. And friends, I understand visions aren't perfect descriptors. They're just an allusion to something that is too glorious to explain. But we can take confidence in knowing the King will return. Revelation 19 verse 11 through 16 says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Tell me if this doesn't sound like a conquering king returning. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written. Would you say it with me? King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming, friends. I'd like to share a song with you by video about a king who is coming. Yeah. 
They knew something about a king who was coming. And I just ask you today, do you know that king? Some of us only know Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem's manger. But friends, I'm asking you, do you know him as your king and your savior? You see, when you know him in that way, you see him differently on the cross. You see the tomb in a different way. And you have a hope that when this earth is done, you will not have to be afraid because your king is still on his throne. Is he your king? Has the king been placed on the throne of your heart? Let's pray together. I just want to ask you to be still for a moment, and I know this is not your normal Christmas storytelling time. But maybe today it's the most important day of the year because it's the day when you acknowledge Jesus is not on the throne of your life. He's not your king because you still hold that seat. You are still the boss. You are still the one in control. You are still the one making all the decisions. You don't bow down to anyone, much less Jesus. And friends, I would just ask, if you feel that way in your heart, you need to acknowledge that sin, that's disobedience, that's rebellion to God Almighty. And if you feel that way and you feel that sense, it is most likely that you are not a follower of Jesus and that you are not a Christian, that you are not saved. And maybe today you would say to God, forgive me, I am wrong. I need to place you as the ultimate authority of my life. I bow before you. I offer my life to you. I confess and repent to you. If you need to make that decision today, I pray that you wouldn't let just a Christmas come and go, but this would be the best Christmas of your life in that you come to Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith. You can't be the King. You are not the king, and neither am I. There is only one king of the universe. There is only one king who will rule for all eternity. And I want you to know that king. So God, I pray right now in this spirit of invitation and response, if there would be one, maybe more, who need to bow to you for the very first time, I pray that your spirit will call them, draw them, tenderize their heart, giving them the boldness to step forward and make you the king of their life. It's amazing that we can do it by faith, by prayer, by a heart that is bent. Nothing more. But it's the hardest decision, maybe the most difficult decision we'll ever make to surrender our authority to someone else. So God, I just pray right now, in the spirit of this moment, in the spirit of this day, that you would move on our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.